0: Okay, here we go. Hawk and Dove. So this first scene contains two actors who are part of uh, what Bruce Tim often calls his utility players, or or whatever you want to call them, recurring actors. If not, uh, if not semi regulars in the DCAU, um, Ed Asner, best known from the Mary Tyler Moore Show, plays Hephaestus, the God of the Forge, and Michael York plays Ares. Now, Ed Asner played Roland Daggett bat- back in Batman the Animated Series, and uh, Granny Goodness in Superman, and Michael York played um, Count Vertigo in Batman, and Kanto in Superman. So, two hat-tricks right there. Two of the most uh, recognizable and distinguished actors working in television. So I'm not sure if this is supposed to be Mount Olympus or where it's supposed to be. I guess that's the uh, that's the implication. But if that's the case, it's kind of odd that they never give us an establishing shot or make a big deal of it, because Wonder Woman is able to just fly to Mount Olympus. Well, where is it? But, anyway. So, uh, this episode was one of the uh, least well-received of the initial run of Justice League Unlimited and I'll uh, I'll point out why, or or at least give my opinions as to why, as as, uh, as things happen later in the episode. But it bears mentioning going in that this was not very well received. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, coming as it did after uh, after for the man who has everything, and I believe kid stuff even there just before this, which uh, well a completely different episode from for the man who has everything in terms of tone and, and style, uh, was a, a very enjoyable romp and had great animation. And Not that this doesn't have great animation, too. It's DR movie, just like kid stuff. But It does kind of pale in comparison to those episodes, even though I do enjoy it, and I enjoy it a lot, but I can kind of see where the criticisms come from. So we're going to open here uh, in Kasnia, not seen since uh season two's maid of honor audrey is now queen as is mentioned by jean in a few minutes and is apparently having trouble uniting the country i guess the uh the implication is that due to vandal savage's schemes uh he had perhaps set various factions of the country against each other and and uh done what he could to to ferment strife so as to uh so as to, uh, aid his, his schemes, but certainly the situation isn't being, uh, made any better by Ares here. Now, it's, it's worth mentioning that when Hades appeared in, uh, season one's Paradise Lost, they kind of gave him Ares's M.O. and his stature in Wonder Woman's rogues gallery. Ares is kind of her big arch nemesis at least was for a while during the uh during the John Byrne and Phil Jimenez and uh, and even into the Greg Rucka runs on Wonder Woman and uh they kind of Hades sort of supplanted him, and uh although they've kind of managed to preserve some of Ares's character here uh they've kind of made him more suave and a manipulator whereas He was a lot more of a demonic, aggressive presence in the comics. And then for a while in Greg Wreck's run, he kind of went back the other way, and he was closer to how he appeared here, but it's worth worth noting that when Hades first appeared, there was a little bit of uh, outcry among some of the more hardcore Wonder Woman fans that it should have been Ares who was given that prime spot as Wonder Woman's first real adversary. Now, Diana's outfit here, I, first of all, I really enjoy seeing the characters in civilian outfits and, and not on active duty. You don't get to see a lot of it in the series, so you really enjoy it when it comes up. But her outfit here, the uh, the white outfit with the kind of bell-bottomy pants, is, I imagine, a nod to the mod Wonder Woman uh, done by Mike Sikowski, where she lost her powers and was basically a, a human secret agent with martial arts skills, and she wore the sort of white, bell-bottomy outfit. And, uh, it's making a comeback in the comics now, but this was a nod to it, I assume. Now, Wonder Woman's characterization in this episode took a little bit of flack. It's probably one of the, uh, one of the main criticisms about the episode, that she just all of a sudden seems angry for no reason. And although they kind of set up in earlier episodes, uh, her emotional distance from humanity, and, and so on and so forth, the fact that they didn't play it regularly makes it seem kind of out of the blue here. And that's a valid criticism, but given that they did set up aspects of it earlier, I'm willing to forgive uh, its sudden appearance here, given that this is, or at least was, intended to be at this stage of the game an anthology series. Wonder Woman had only appeared in, uh, in For the Man Who Has Everything. If you go by production order, and there it was a happy occasion she was going to visit Superman. This is the first time we've seen her outside of the Big Three interacting with other members of the League in Justice League Unlimited after the events of Starcross, so you can kind of explain it as being being due to those events, her, her suddenly aggressive nature. Now here we go, the introduction of Hank and Don Hall, otherwise known as Hawk and Dove. Now... Uh, In terms of casting for this episode, Hawk and Dove are played by Fred Savage and Jason Hervey, respectively, Uh, almost certainly best known from the TV series uh, The Wonder Years, where they also played brothers, and in fact that was a little bit of intentional stunt casting here. Uh, Fred Savage had done some voiceover work and was still uh, fairly active as an actor, but Jason Hervé was a little bit harder to reach apparently when they when they had when Andrea Romano and Bruce Tim had the idea of casting the two of them for this episode, but they were finally able to reach him and he was really keen on coming in and, and uh seeing Fred Savage again and acting together again. And the original intention was for Fred Savage to play Dove and for Jason Hervey to play Hawk. Since on the Wonder Years, Fred Savage's character, the main character of the show, was more easygoing and was a nice guy, whereas Jason Hervé's character the, was the older brother and was a bit of a jerk and a bully. But apparently, uh, or so Andrea Romano, uh, Romano says, when they actually came to record the episodes, they found that uh, the register of their voices and just the way their voices played against each other would be better served if they switched roles. And so you end up with Fred Savage as Hawk and Jason Hervey as Dove. And it seemed it, it works in the episode. I'd I'd have to hear, you know, some behind the scenes stuff of them doing the other roles to determine whether it's it was a, a justified call or not, but it certainly works the way uh, the way it's presented in the final episode. Now earlier we had uh, obviously we had Wonder Woman talking with Sean, and I gotta say that I love the way they developed uh Diana and Sean's relationship over the course of the series. They didn't get a lot of screen time together um in season one. Um, in Paradise Lost, I mean, the big Wonder Woman episode, Jean didn't really have a lot to do, and in uh, Jean's big episode, The Night of Shadows, Wonder Woman didn't have much to do. But starting in Tabula in Season 2, where Jean has his little crisis of faith and goes out into the woods, it's Wonder Woman that comes and finds him and brings him back to humanity, even though he's sort of gotten most of the way there himself by the time Diana finds him. And then... Uh, Later on, you get uh, you get great episodes like this, where Jean tries to counsel Wonder Woman in terms of being more human and connecting with humanity, and then that relationship is followed through in season five, when you get to, to another shore, where the roles are reversed yet again, and it's Wonder Woman trying to get Jean to come down out of the watchtower and mingle with humanity a bit more. Uh, she's sort of paying him back for for him prodding her in a similar way here. And then, of course, in Destroyer, when John makes his big return, it's Wonder Woman that sees him first and shares their big reunion. So it's, it's a really good through line in, in the entire five seasons of the two of them sort of helping each other come to terms with humanity. And another thing I really love is the lighting they use inside Wonder Woman's invisible jet. There's just sort of this haze to it. I mean, there's the, there's the color palette they use, certainly. But there's also this sort of glow to it that I find really, really beautiful. So during, uh, during some of the rather long battle scenes in this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of Hawk and Dove from the comics, because there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Uh, they were created by an artist named Steve Ditko, who's perhaps best known as the original artist on Spider-Man, but he also created a lot of characters for Charlton Comics that later became DC Comics characters, such as the Blue Beetle, Captain Atom, and the Question. So quite prolific in terms of his contributions indirectly to this series, certainly. Um, and the the original dynamic between them, as much as it is here, with Hank being the aggressive uh, warlike brother and Don being the, the pacifist, they sort of skirted the whole pacifist thing here a little bit where he's clearly peace-loving and he's clearly, you know to use the stereotypical uh, definition of the word liberal as opposed to conservative in terms of their political philosophies, but I don't want to get bogged down in that. Uh, but in the comics, he was, you know, a pacifist through and through. He would he would hardly fight, at least in the, in the initial run, he would barely engage in any physical combat. They sort of eased up a little bit on that later. Whereas here, he's got an interesting fighting style where he does engage in hand-to-hand combat, but he doesn't really punch or kick he uses his opponent's momentum against them and sort of takes them down using their own aggression as opposed to applying aggression himself but anyway um so yeah so the series only lasted 6 issues it was a fairly had a fairly short-lived unsuccessful run uh but the characters were brought back as members of uh, the teen titans west a, a branch group of the Teen Titans a few years later. So they, they did live on. They didn't fade into obscurity after their initial series. and uh, as, But aside from the, a few appearances in the Titans West, uh, they didn't really get too many prominent starring roles. And uh, and so it went for about 20 years until, in 1985, Crests and Infinite Earths rolled around, and Dove was killed by the shadow creatures that were the main you know, cannon fodder enemy of that series, while Hawk looked on helplessly uh, too far away to help him. After Don's death, Hawk became even more aggressive and out of control to the point where other heroes tended to look on him more as an obstacle or a potential threat than a comrade-in-arms. This went on for a while until uh, Rob Liefeld Resurrected uh, the characters for uh, another Hawk and Dove series, in which Hank was paired with a new dove, a female named Don Granger, and uh, they had their own adventures for a while. and And Don was a bit more powerful and a bit more aggressive than uh, when I say when I say the new dove was a female. Don it's spelled D-A-W-N, obviously as opposed to D-O-N, which the male was. Uh, but the female Don was was more aggressive than the original Dove had ever been, but still kept true to the original concept of the character. And uh, this new pairing was, was popular in its time and, and went on for a little while, and, and they made appearances here and there, until um, another big crossover storyline in the comics came about, wherein Captain Adam, and I believe I touched on this briefly in the initiation commentary, but if not, you'll forgive me for repeating myself here in which captain adam was supposed to be re- stand revealed as this as the the past form of a future time traveling despot named monarch captain adam as he currently existed was going to become monarch some time in the not too distant future and a time traveling character named wave rider had come back to determine which hero was going to become monarch the big surprise ending was supposed to be that it was going to be captain adam But word about that leaked out to the fans, and DC scrambled to come up with another surprise reveal, so instead of it being Captain Atom, they made it Hawk. So, Hawk became Monarch when the future version of Monarch killed Don Granger, and Hank, in, in a rage, became the very villain that had just killed the woman he loved. And so Hawk became monarch, a villain, and fought Captain Adam for a while, and, and uh, until he was killed, uh, relatively recently in uh, Jeff Johns' JSA series. And everybody thought that was going to be the end of it, but then it turned out Don Granger wasn't really dead, and she came back. And uh, recently, within the last year or so, she's been paired with a new Hawk, also female, her sister Holly Granger. So there, in a nutshell, is basically the history of Hawk and Dove from their creation to the to the present. Uh, much as many of the other characters who that have been used in in JLU, not really headliners in their own sense, although like I said, they did have their own series and mini series a, a couple of times over the course of their history. But the sort of quirky, obscure characters that comic fans tend to latch onto and, and not really want to let fade away. And so Bruce Timm and Dwayne McDuffie and James Tucker, being three such comic geeks, it's not surprising that characters like Hawk and Dove are trotted out on JLU alongside other sort of quirky favorites like The Question and Creeper and Vigilante, Shining Knight, characters like that that have this long and storied history, but men on the street wouldn't know them from Adam so a few a uh, few seconds ago hephaestus made a reference to the weakness in wonder woman's armor now uh later on in justice league unlimited in season 4 is the balance we find out that because diana stole her armor it hadn't been properly activated and her mother touches the star on her tiara and there's this whole big thing and it's quite dramatic and and more than a little campy but uh Whether that's the weakness referred to here, whether the weakness is simply that the armor has not been activated, uh, is never really explained. That doesn't really seem like a weakness, more like, you know, a problem with its current state as opposed to something inherent in the armor. Uh, He could also be referring to something which they never ended up playing up in the series, which is in in the old comics, Wonder Woman's weakness, her kryptonite, if you will, used to be that if a man chained her bracelets together, she would lose all her powers. And this was sort of in keeping with the sort of vaguely sadomasochistic uh, bent of the original William Moulton Marston and H.G. Peter Wonder Woman comics. But they didn't really play that up here, so whether that's, you know, which of those two things Hephaestus is referring to, if either, uh, is never really explained. It's also worth mentioning that Hephaestus mentions that he made the armor for Diana's mother, which explains what it's doing sitting in a place of honor on Themiscura when Diana steals it in *Secret Origins*, it was a gift from a god to Hippolyta. It wasn't, as some hypothesized at the time, uh, sitting there waiting to be worn by a champion who would venture forth into man's world, like it was in the comics. so now we're getting to the point where the uh the weakness in the annihilator is revealed and we come to fans main criticism of the episode which is that after all this build up and i'm going to phrase this very uh very very in a very very mean way but this is the way the fans would look at it after all the build up to the annihilator the solution to the problem ends up being for everybody to be happy. Now, I think that's a gross oversimplification. The idea that there is a monster that feeds off people's aggression and the only way to stop it is to let go of your aggression is a very old comic book, science fiction, fantasy, what have you uh, conceit. And the fact that they've waited this long to trot it out in the DCAU is probably to be commended. So it's a bit of a cliche, but it's certainly not like they invented this, this problem. And I do feel it's, it's played out in a, in a dramatic way where even though you do know what the, what the annihilator's weakness is at this point, the question isn't, the, the, the drama then stems from, well, not, are they going to figure out how to stop it? But is Don, um, True enough to his own beliefs, and are the Casnians willing to subscribe to Don's beliefs enough to stop the annihilator from taking those last few steps and and killing them all? So, the actual conceit of the ending is a little cliched, I'll grant you, but the way it plays out, I I feel is is very dramatic and is well done. The only part of this episode I don't like is when. Uh, at the end, Ares appears and makes his big speech about the flaws in humanity, and and goes about, oh, I'll return when you least expect it, and so on, and then he never did return. If he had returned when we least expected it, then that would be something, but uh, in retrospect, it plays out as an old, cliched, uh, mustache-twirling villain monologue at the end of an episode that nothing really comes of, so that's a little bit of a weakness, I feel, but that's only in retrospect, and maybe they did intend to bring him back and just couldn't find the right story to do it in, so I guess I can't really hold that against him. People also didn't like Dove for some reason. I think Dove's cool. I mean, it's... it's if you just see it, like, see the concept of the character written down, it it might seem kind of lame, but I like the way he's played in this episode. I like the fact that he's not just all angsty and saying, oh, I can't fight, whatever will I do, and sitting on the sidelines biting his nails while while Hawk does all the fighting. He gets in there and mixes it up in his own style, and he believes in what he believes in strongly enough to be able to save a lot of lives, and that's to be commended. So uh, he took uh, a lot of flack from the fans, perhaps some of the more uh, bigoted fans, if, if you'll forgive me, for being too quote-unquote feminine and to quote-unquote gay. I don't think Dove is gay, and it's he's never been played that way in the comics. Uh, the fact that some fans seem to equate peace-loving with femininity, and all the things that that entails perhaps speaks more to their outmoded mindset than anything else. And if at the end everybody just had a big hug and it was a big happy rainbow ending, then I might agree that the, the ending is too easy. But the fact that the problems in Kasni are clearly not over uh, helps to to sell the ending, I feel. So there we go, Hawk and Dove. Um, took a lot of flack, as I said, from fans, but it introduced a, a couple of interesting characters, at least I feel they're interesting had some uh, some great performances, gave Wonder Woman some much-needed spotlight, and uh, helped introduce uh, another important member of her rogues gallery. So if nothing else, it, I feel it should be recognized for those accomplishments. Thanks for listening.